You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and get it open to Zephaniah, but I want to do a little work before then. Um, you know that last week we had mentioned that uh, we have people who are just walking through this season, and it's a hard season, and that season involves for many cancer. Um, we mentioned how Robin Lobsher was diagnosed with colon cancer, and we mentioned how um, it was caught early, and we are grateful for that, but the road is going to be long. Uh, we know that David uh, Presley and Patrick Sukup uh, were diagnosed with cancer. David, this is his second time around with it, and he's under 30. Um, we found out this week that our beloved, um, our beloved Charlie, uh, who's a part of our church, was diagnosed with lung cancer. And Charlie's coming through a season of life that is extraordinarily difficult and beyond my imagination, frankly, um, and has lived through brain cancer uh, as well um, and has had brain surgery because of that. And for those of you who do not know our friend Pete Mariskak, um, Pete, we met years ago when he was living through homelessness and became a dear friend of many of us here. Pete used to always say that if he was ever going to give Jesus a fair shot, he would do it because of the witness of this church and the way we loved him. And he lives here. He's no longer homeless, um, and he's been living his life. Uh, he's from New Jersey. He used to serve in the carnivals there, and just a beautiful guy. Um, about as New York as the day is long in stereotypes. Um, but John's missional community has taken care of him when he went through his first bout of cancer, and now, unfortunately, he's going to have to go through a second bout. Um, Sandy and Cricket, uh, Sandy Cooper and her daughter Cricket, are come to first service. Um, you may remember some time ago that Sandy's grandson um, passed away uh, and not too long ago, and they just found out this weekend that her granddaughter is now in a coma um, and on a ventilator, and they're hoping she wakes up. I'm supposed to hear back. They're going to try and wake her up today, but she's not breathing on her own, um, and that's hard, and they're going through a hard time. Uh Rob Smith, our brother Rob, uh, called me last night, and we were texting through the night and been texting this morning. His uh, daughter, Quinn, was in a car accident. And if you remember, Rob preached not so long ago um, about how his oldest daughter had passed away. Um, and she is still in the hospital. Uh, she's conscious and aware, but they're trying to figure out what's going on with her. Did she tear her esophagus? Did they, they thought she might have fractured her uh, spine or her neck or maybe had brain hemorrhage and thankfully she's in the clear from those things it seems but they're still awaiting awaiting word this is heavy and the world's at war always has been whether it was Russia Ukraine or whether it was various civil wars in various parts of the country that are so far away from us that we don't even know exist or whether it's in the city streets of this own country Violence, um, which is the marker, it seems, of the reign of sin and death is at work in this world. But there are some wars that get our attention, you know, always for a couple of weeks anyway, right? Um, that every now and then provokes Christian responses that sometimes don't seem very Christian, sometimes seem very strange in what brand of Christianity it comes from. The point is, is we have a world of violence. When you're a pastor, you get these calls. And I recognize that you don't know some of these people. And you feel it because you're a part of this church family. I see it on your faces. Some of you are new and you don't know these names. And you feel it, but you don't feel it as deeply. And that's, that's all right. That's how it works. 
when you're a pastor and when you're a leadership, when you're elders and your staff, you feel it on all levels because we love y'all and we know you by name, right? And we know your stories. And so it's not one story. It's not two stories. It's 10 stories. It's 15 stories. And I mean, I could go on with all the things. And so it becomes important that to live into the confession of our faith that we acknowledge these stories together when we gather. And I know that we don't want to come here. Uh, I know that Christians don't like to come to a space and have to name the things that we have named for years, whether it's racial injustice, white supremacy, nationalism, violence, mass shootings, our love affair with guns, all the different things that we do in this society. Um, and, and, and I know that sometimes it'd be easy for us to just go, ah, you know, that's problems out there. Here's the thing you have to realize. If you look around, you'll see our diversity. You'll see our racial ethnic diversity. You'll see our socioeconomic diversity. If you look in the first service, you'll see the same. And one of the things you'll learn about being a part of Williamsburg Christian Church is there's never a them. It's always an us. There's never an out there because the out there is tethered to people in here. Does that make sense? So we can't not name it, and we can't not spend time lamenting and praying through it. But it's also important that when we do that, we don't lose sight of the fact that it is still possible, as awkward and maybe even as dismissive as it feels, it is still possible to hold on to joy in the midst of it all. And that's real. I have walked with people through suffering for 22 years of my life, and I know too many Christians who died well. You follow me on that? who finished strong, not in fear, not in anxiety, in sadness for the people they would leave, but not in anything other than joy. And I would betray their witness, much less the confession of our faith. If even in the midst of all of this, we didn't remember that in the midst of the sorrows that we must name, in the midst of the violent and evil atrocities that we must call by name, by name, we can do so and hold out the hope of joy. Or we will die the death of a thousand cuts in our own lives. And so that's what I want to do today. So I'm going to ask you a question. I don't want to ask you a question. I want to ask you to scan that if you want to. Um, and then <laughs> we'll go on. Because here's the reality of it. The reality of this world in which we live, where there's cancer and death and sadness and sorrow and hurt and harms, is that there are joys and celebrations and hopes and dreams. And in the midst of all of that, life does carry on. Unfortunately, as I was talking to someone who's currently suffering, she was reminding me that, look, my suffering is hell-ish, but the sun will still rise tomorrow and still set, and I have to do things anyway. I have to get up about my life. I mean, in the midst of it all, we still have birthdays to celebrate, and so we celebrate birthdays. In the midst of it all, we have some people who work for uh, human services and social services that we're going to celebrate today. In the midst of it all, there's still things to be named and hope to be held out. In the midst of it all, we have events going on, like the Greater Williamsburg, the Heal Greater Williamsburg, Heal the Nation Community Day that VRHI, Virginia Racial Institute, that Laura founded that I'm on the board of, is hosting this Saturday. In the midst of it, there are still things that we can do and be a part of there are still prayers we can pray there's still food at pineapple inn that needs to be filled there's still you know what i mean there's still these things that we can carry on and if we do not have joy if we cannot find some sort of strength 
deep down within our soul based upon the hope of our faith to carry on, then we will just sit idle and the world will continue to burn. And one of the things we're going to learn about in Zephaniah this morning is how God invited the faithful to join God in making right what was made wrong by unfaithful people. Are you with me on that? We'll say that again. God invited the faithful, the ones who were doing justice, the ones who were worshiping Yahweh, the ones whose lives were marked by holiness and compassion, and God asked them to step out of the shadows of idolatry, out of the shadows of injustice, and into the light of justice, and into the light of peacemaking, and into the light of hope, and join God in making wrong what was going wrong, in making right what was going wrong in the world, and bring about the promises of God and when you read the rest of Zephaniah you find out that's exactly what happened King Josiah who became the king at eight years old which by the way if he can be a king at eight years old eight-year-olds can clean their room parents that's a pro tip take it on take it on say be like Josiah boy clean your room you can do that like you can carry that on but like if King Josiah can run a nation right and he can lead the people of God away from the things that are tearing God's people down And then the people of God can come about as a society and join God in the rediscovery of Torah and the living out the law of Moses and living out care and compassion and holiness and lives that are marked by that. That is a story for us, a story for us to remember that we can join God in the midst of all that and even in the midst of all this harm and even in the midst of all this judgment that we find ourselves under because of the reign of sin and death at the world. Or because God refuses to let us go on killing ourselves. And God says, I want to step out into you and I want to dance with you. That's what Zephaniah says. I want to dance with you. I want to celebrate belonging with you. That's still possible. So we can be blues in the life of the mind, and we can moan out with a blues moan, but it's got to come out into a gospel shout. You with me on that? Come on now. And we got to bring that out somehow. But it all starts with something that we often forget, and that's imagination. Because imagination is a playful word, and we think it's a word reserved for kids. I remember one of my favorite things to do was to watch Ian play when he was little. We lived in this little nine-square-foot home. And he would dominate everything. And he was a quiet kid, so he wasn't, like, loudly dominating, but he was very strategic in how his little toys went to battle. And he would have all his Avengers and all of his Star Wars character, and they merged into one great, you know, combined crossover series in his imagination. And... um, and he, what he would do is he would line them all, he would put them all in a circle. And he would be very strategic as to which good guy would be in the circle. And sometimes the bad guys would join the good guys in the circle. And there would be one sad dude who's about to get a beat down of a lifetime right in the middle. And that's what he would do. And he would lay on the floor. And I've got a picture of him doing it. And I can still see it. And he'd lay on the floor. And he would not, he's not the kid who would be like, <laughs> like he wasn't that kid. I was that kid. Um, he's more like probably his mama. And it's like, oh. And so he, he watched them. He, but I knew in his head that they, like, there's a battle going on. Like he's watching. He's just laying there looking at it. And there's a battle happening. Nothing's happening with the toys. But in his imagination, the world is just going. And Iron Man is with Luke Skywalker. And they're taking care of Hulk who went bad. And Yoda's trying to convince them not to. And all the different things that are going on. And this is happening. I remember going, man, why is it we lose that? And I think we lose it because we pray prayers that don't get answered the way we want. I think we lose it because the world's on fire. 
I think we lose it because we are more committed, listen to me please, we're more committed to the logic of this world than we are the logic of the kingdom of God. What do you mean by that, Fred? I mean that we're more committed to what we have known and seen in the current moment and forget very quickly what we know and have seen in the past. We're very quick to live based upon our own personal experiences and center our own personal experiences in our own faith and inadvertently, unknowingly, unwittingly decenter the story of our faith from our faith. And that's when we can't make sense of it. And we fall into the trap of cynicism. Why pray? We fall into the trap of apathy. Why give them a second chance? They're just going to do it again. We fall in the trap of just resignation of why even bother? And we quit. Or on the other side, we center our positive experiences where God has shown up time and time again and we center that so much that we inadvertently and unwittingly deny the suffering and sorrow and confusion of others. So we very plately say, oh, but it's for God's glory. God will work it out for good. Give it to Jesus. And we decenter the suffering of others at the same time. We do not always have the imagination to hold both in view. And what ends up happening is we end up forming a diseased imagination. An imagination that is more committed to the logic and the ways of society than it is the logic and the ways that the kingdom of God invites us to see the world and do life differently in it. When you're a pastor, you get to see all the iterations of this. So I want you to think about all of your good and all of your bad, and I would like for you to multiply it times 300. And that becomes my point of view. And that is very disorienting. But it's also my responsibility to somehow try to help you see that too. And then take all of what we see and build a new pair of glasses that are framed by the story of Scripture, not the story of our own personal experiences. Where the story of Scripture can help us figure out how to interpret our own experiences. You read this when the psalmist writes, you notice when the psalm is like, kill them all, God, right? Or the psalmist is like, wake up, God, where are you at? But then midway through the psalm, you'll see a change. And you'll see the psalmist say something like, oh, but I remember the Red Sea. What are they calling back to? The story. Not their own personal experience. They're not saying, I remember that time I, you answered my prayer. They're saying, I remember the works you've done and the wonders of old. See, what you find is that what the psalmist is doing is he's leaning into what I like to call an historical imagination. If you say, Fred, what is your way of understanding Scripture? I would say at the end of the day, my understanding of Scripture is that it's meant to form within us an historical imagination, a way of thinking about the world that's grounded and informed by the Scriptures rather than informed by the news and maybe even our own personal news. Did you know that studies show that imagination is central to our existence as a people and that everybody has imagination? As a matter of fact, imagination in its most basic meaning literally means image making. That's all it means is image making. We always make images. 
we're always going about imagining. The disciplines, of, the disciplines of science and philosophy tell us that everyone everywhere uses their imagination daily in some way. For some people, it's to create elaborate theories. For some people, it's to invent. For some people, it's dreams. For some people, it's planning an event. For some people, it's, it's creating products and books. For some people, it is making things. For some people, it is showing up in a room with the hope that something happens. It's not just reserved for artists and scientists. It's something that all of us do, whether we do it consciously or not. And one of the things that we learn is that studies show that more imagination, the more we cultivate imagination, the more it produces change in our beliefs. Did you know that? Because when we begin to imagine outcomes... Stay with me. When we begin to imagine what life could be, we begin to do what needs to be done between here and that outcome to make that possible. Does that make sense? For the nerds in the room, that's called social imaginaries, where we have this way of seeing our place in society. When I grow up, I want to be. And then I begin to do what it takes to become what it is I envision myself to become. Does that make sense? We do it in faith all the time, or we don't, and that's part of the problem. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that Jesus said, I want you to have childlike faith, is because Jesus isn't asking us to just have unguarded, unchecked belief. I believe part of what Jesus calls people to when Jesus calls us to childlike faith is to have a bigger imagination. Because I think Jesus is well aware of the cynicism we are all capable of. I think Jesus is well aware of the apathy that threatens to steal our joy. And that threatens to steal our hope. Our belief in resurrection. Did you know every time you come to the table that you were exercising your imagination? When Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. Some of us have such a diseased imagination. We would have argued with Jesus and been like, yo, that's bread. That's not your body. I don't get it, Jesus. You're too abstract. <laughs> Someone take, eat, take, drink. This is my blood. Yeah, Jesus, that's like Welch's. No, actually, it was wine, but we do Welch's. Go figure. And it, sometimes it's nasty, but that nonetheless, we do it. Um, but we then we'd be like, yeah, Jesus, you know, this is this is this is juice. This is this is the, what do you mean? This is your blood and, and, and gather at the table. I mean, the table's too small. How do we gather at the table? And what we don't realize is we are always as Christians, we're always using our imagination. The question is, are we using our imagination? Well, and the question is, what's informing our imagination the most? And what I want to propose to you is that what needs to happen is we need to cultivate an historical imagination. And here's where I want to go with it. I'm going to try and do this relatively quickly but I'm going to try to not talk like a Southerner who's drank three cups of coffee. I'm going to try and slow it down because Hoyt has been on me for 13 years to slow down my speech that I preach. <laughs> I've received three amens from Hoyt in 13 years, and, 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 and that's one of, that's the third. I mean, let's see, see what we get. Um, when the people of God, when the Hebrew people, they were called Hebrew people, they weren't the Israelites at the time, they were Hebrews and they were under Egyptian captivity, how long were they enslaved by Pharaoh? Come on, how long? 400 years, and what were they enslaved by Pharaoh to do? This is important. To make bricks, and why were they making bricks? To build pyramids, to build storehouses, to hold what? Grain, and why did Pharaoh want bigger storehouses to store grain? To be the empire, control, it was power. So Pharaoh did what, you know, countries do, right? I'm not going to name any. 
right, where we live, but I'm not, um, do what countries have done and nations have done, and that is enslave a people, disempower them, use them as a free enslavement economy to build a bigger empire. Nothing new under the sun, is there? Now, for 400 years, generations of Hebrew people, what, what nation state have they known then? What, what kind of court systems had they heard about? What kind of economy system had they learned about? What kind of medical care had they learned about? Health care systems and social systems did they know? All Pharaoh, all empire, and from the perspective of an enslaved individual for 400 years. Now, they get liberated. God does miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, right? And they come up into the Red Sea. And they look at the Red Sea, and they look at Moses, and what do they hear in the back? Chariots, the, the, the Egyptian army, and what's their response to Moses? Anybody know? You should have left us there. We should have stayed there, at least there. That just goes to show you can be liberated in your body and not liberated in your consciousness. But that's probably another sermon. And they say, we should have, you should have just left us there, man. Now we're going to die. We should have gone back, but now we're going to die. But they had just seen what? All of these things, right? All of these miracles. What's Moses' response? Anybody remember? Lord, you just want to got, you got that? Don't you, you, you just want to go on, go on, Lord. Like, I tell you, my sister can preach, though. We're going to get her up here one day. But I, no, but stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He says, stop straining and open your imagination to see. And what happened? The sea parted. And was it sloppy? Were they like, oh, was that it? No, it was what? The story goes, it was dry. And they got on the other side. And so they get on the other side, and soon thereafter, Moses says, Hey, y'all, hey, I got these tablets from God, and we're going to start a nation. Seriously. And they're like, a, a what now? A nation. Well, what nation do they know? Egypt. So they only know enslaved economy as the enslaved, court systems that are not for them justice systems that are not for them, health care systems that are not for them. But now Torah is going to walk them through the process of cultivating a what? Begins with an I, ends with an M. Imagination. Why is that necessary? Because they've never seen what Yahweh is proposing to them. So if you notice in the story, constantly one of the dominant phrases in Deuteronomy is, remember you were slaves in Egypt once, and hey, I want you to imagine this kind of world. Matter of fact, Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples, he says, hey, the kingdom of God is like. You know what that means? I want you to imagine a world where God's reign does this. Imagination has been central to the Christian faith from the jump because it was central to the Hebrew way of existence. Because if they did not have an imagination to envision a world where Yahweh is king, they would not be able to join Yahweh in creating it. Are you with me? I'll say that again. If they could not envision, if they could not imagine, if they didn't have an imagination big enough to envision the world that Yahweh is talking about here, then they would never be able to join Yahweh in creating it. If all they did was fixate their imagination on their own personal experiences, then they would have created an enslavement economy, which is why Yahweh kept reminding him, remember you were slaves once. Do not do that. And so they had to join Yahweh in it. 
And when they lived in accordance to Torah, they were a just and holy worshiping community that Yahweh said, you're going to be my light into the nations. You're going to show the nations what I see in the world. You're going to show them my vision for humanity. You with me? Yo, like that's supposed to be what the church does. But if all we do is call a gathering a church, we're not going to do very well at that. That's also another sermon that Laura will preach later. <laughs> what Yahweh is calling us into is a renewed imagination. Always a renewed imagination. To be the people that Yahweh has invited us to be and to join Yahweh in making right what has been made wrong in the world. And in Zephaniah, we see it really happening. So if you have your Bibles for the next few minutes, we'll just skim through, we'll survey Zephaniah. So when Zephaniah comes to Judah, there hasn't been a poet prophet sent to them in about 50 or 60 years since Isaiah and Micah. And God's people have never, ever liked prophets when they were alive. Frankly, we're not very different. Our society loves some Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but only after he's dead. When he's alive, he's the most wanted man in, the, in America, right? And that's how it was always the case for the prophets. The prophets are loved, but only once they're dead. Because once they're dead, they're no longer a threat. And then we can see maybe the wisdom in what they were saying because we're not so hypersensitive and defensive about our way of life. And so this is true with them. And so Isaiah and Micah had come. It's been 50 years. Zephaniah is now on the scene, and he's in the kingdom of Judah. And he is trying to help them see the way Yahweh wants them to live. Poets are always, always social critics. They're always patriot statesmen. They're always poets. Prophets do not do policy. They do poetry. And they do poetry in a way to bring about social critique, in a way of provoking, everybody say provoking, the imagination of the people of God to rethink again. It's very similar when Paul said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. King Hezekiah is a descendant of Zephaniah. So Zephaniah isn't your typical prophet. There's royal blood that flows through his veins. So he knows the ins and outs of state politics. He knows the ins and outs of the courts. And he knows that Judah has lost her way. And so he comes into play Josiah sitting on the throne at age eight his father and grandfather were wicked and Judah is a mess we when we read the when we read the Hebrew scriptures we have to see how the kings really really mess up Torah are they enlivened Torah and as a society as a society when you read Zephaniah you're going to find that as a society they have given themselves over to all sorts of injustices creating systems that oppress the poor and the widow they have tolerated they have tolerated child sacrifices they have mixed their worship of God with the worship of other false gods the priests have been bought by the highest bidder the priests have been bought by the highest bidder because priests like pastors want power and so they get bought, and they have persecuted every prophet has tried to warn them. And I need you to remember as we read this, because there's some strong language, that Yahweh has tried to warn them through prophet after prophet after prophet. I mean, Isaiah even preached naked to try and get their attention. I know, it's like extreme stuff. Yeah, it's there. It's in the Bible. Um, most people are like, what, are you making stuff up? Not this time. Like, it's there. Um, and, and these are extreme events. Because 
oftentimes prophets are theatrical players in the theater of the world to try and get people's attention. So what happens here in the text, if you'll look um, at Zephaniah, you're going to find a handful of things that has taken place. The society, they fall into pride as a society. And it's too easy for you to think about this as a nation state. And I'm asking you to not think about this as a nation state. I'm asking you to think about this as a society of people. That's why I use the language society. Think about it as a people. All right, the kings are corrupt. The politicians are corrupt. That's definitely true. And laws and legislations are passed that are upholding the injustices. And religion is being twisted all sorts of ways. And the priests have been bought out. But as a result, the society as a people have let that happen. It's come from the people, and they're part of this. And what has happened is that pride has settled deep into the soil of Judah. Self-absorption has led to a false sense of self-sufficiency, which has resulted in selfish indulgences. So they are completely centering life upon themselves. They're the center of their world. They're self-absorbed, and they believe that they have everything they need to be who they need to be, and that, and that has led them to do whatever they want to do. Judah has fallen into a faithless pride trying to build a society without the reign of God, but I need you to make no mistake. They would still say they're one nation under God. They would still believe and promote the fact that they are Yahweh's people. But there's nothing within the fabric of their neighbor-to-neighbor society. Everybody say neighbor-to-neighbor society, please. There's nothing about that that shows they are following Torah. You with me? It's important that we know that context. And their sins point to one primary reality. They no longer trust God as Lord. And they no longer worship only him. And Zephaniah has witnessed the fallout of Josiah's father and grandfather's reign, and he denounces this place as a, and I quote, rebellious and polluted city. People probably don't want to go to his church. And word on the street is that Josiah has a different moral character than his father and grandfather and is growing into a fine king, one that chases after the heart of God. The Assyrian Empire that's dominated the world for 100 years is finally teetering on disaster. And so what's happening is since their rulers are fickle, people are starting to wonder, is King Josiah going to be the one that saves us? Is he going to be the one that makes Judah great again? Is he going to be the one that makes this what we've always hoped it would be? Get us back to our glory days. That's what they're hoping. Zephaniah, with his royal blood and all his knowledge of government matters, isn't interested in doing that kind of policy. He's interested in doing poetry because he has a word from the Lord through a prophetic vision. And unfortunately, it's one of judgment. And here's how it goes. Prepare to be encouraged. (laughs) Zephaniah 1, verse 14. The terrible day of the Lord is near. Feel good about yourselves. Right? This isn't, this isn't, this is heavy. Swiftly it comes, a day of bitter tears, a day when even strong men, by the way, strong men is always a metaphor in Scripture as military leaders. In a day when strong men will cry out, (coughs) it will be a day when the Lord's anger is poured out, a day of terrible distress and anguish, a day of ruin and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. A day of trumpet calls and battle cries. Down go the walled cities and the strongest battlements. Because you have sinned against the Lord, I will make you grope around like the blind. Your blood will be poured into dust and your bodies will lie rotting on the ground. Your silver and gold will not save you on that day. So what Yahweh is doing is he's poking at their militaristic pride and their economic pride. Do you see that in the text? 
I'm asking, do you see it in the text? Okay, it's important because I don't want an email from you saying I'm picking on these things. Do you see it in the text? It's in the text. And he says, for the whole land will be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. He will make a terrifying end to all the people of the earth. That's a lot to deal with with God. The Lord's passionate and jealous love for his people does not allow the Lord to step aside and watch the people he loves continue destroying themselves. When the jealousy of God is provoked by language in the text, it is Yahweh saying, I love you too much to let this keep going on. I have sent prophet after prophet to you. I have spoken to you time and again and offered you a new way. I have tried to find a way to get your attention. I have even shown you what I've done for you, and I need you to see me, and they won't because they have put their hope in things that has resulted into a diseased imagination where they cannot envision a world that is different than the one that they have built for themselves, but yet it is killing them and they know it. But they, in a very twisted way, are too familiar with it to uproot it and begin again. You with me? Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, the bad news doesn't end there, but there is a call. Because one of the things you'll learn about the prophets of Yahweh is he never levels them bad news without offering them a way out. Even when Yahweh says he's done, that's the goodness of God. Matter of fact, sidebar, real quick, I'm running out of time. But sidebar, just really, really quick. It's a weird thing, but it's important to know. Anytime you hear the word anger, the Lord's anger, the Hebrew word for anger is long nose. I'm serious. Like, look it up. I know it's weird. Um, what it means is that Yahweh is long in the nose. And what that simply means is that Yahweh is fuming, but his anger is long. I wish English translations had a better imagination themselves. Because Yahweh gets a bad rap for being angry all the time when what the original Hebrew intent is trying to say is Yahweh is long in the nose over this. He is looking at y'all like this. That was weird. <laughs> I know, yeah, that just... So chapter 2, verse 1, gather together. Look, gather together before judgment begins. Before your time to repent is what? blown away like chaff but read these next two words for me act now because there comes a point in time where we've got to stop saying thoughts and prayers right there comes a point in time where the people of Yahweh have to do something right act now right before the fierce fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins <coughs> excuse me seek the Lord read it with me all who are humble and what Follow his commands. Like get back, to the, get back to the story. Get back to living in accordance to the imagination I've been trying to form in you through the Torah. Get back to that. But you've got to be humble in that. <clears throat> you've got to be willing to humiliate yourself with that. You've got to be willing to submit yourself to that. Seek to do what is what? Just. And to live what? Humbly, perhaps even the Lord will protect you, protect you from his anger on the day of destruction. I appreciate Zephaniah's honesty because Zephaniah's like, I mean, maybe the Lord will have mercy. And so what ends up happening when you read the rest of the story? Man, I'm running out of time. What ends up happening when you read the rest of the story? 
is that Zephaniah says through the words, of, or God says through the words of Zephaniah to the, fight, to the faithful and just ones to step out of the shadows. Because when you read the rest of chapter two, there's a point where it says, hey, I need you who are faithful and just, the ones who are actually doing it the right way. Because in the midst of every sinful, every sinful society and community, there's always a just people. There's always a people who are worshiping Yahweh. It's not ever hopeless. Remember that time when Elijah comes to God and he's like, I'm the only one who loves you. And Yahweh's like, I got 7,000 people down there. There's always someone, there's always a community of people pressing into the justice and the goodness of God in the midst of all the injustice and corruption. Always. And what you hear Zephaniah doing is he's saying to those people, I need you to step out of the shadows of the injustice. I need you to step out now. I need you to come out. And I need you, and I'm telling you, this is what it says in Zephaniah 2. Read it. I need you to join me in making right what has been made wrong by adhering to the Torah again. And what you end up having in this story is that Josiah hears this word. He finally listens to Zephaniah, and Josiah tears down all of the false idols and all of the gods he tears them down tears them down tears them down with great courage big old upheaval but he does it because it's just and it's right and it's Yahweh and not only that he then he then um, commands that the temple be rebuilt that the temple be reclaimed and restored and renewed and in doing the renewal and restoration of the temple guess what he discovers underneath the rubble the law of God he discovers the Torah and then there's a renewal of imagination among the people of God. And did you know that during Josiah's reign, there was justice and peace? And so Zephaniah sees this as possible. So in the next text, and this is the text we close on, in the next text, he reminds them that this kind of peace, this kind of joy in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the heart, that it is most reflective of the heart of God. God is long in the nose because God ultimately wants us to know God's joy. You belong to God and God is glad to be with you and that's never changed. But when you are no longer glad to be with God because you think there's a better God, then that breaks the heart of God and so God sends prophet after prophet and people after people to try to remind you of what is true and then when we start hurting each other because we no longer have a moral compass of truth because we live in a post-truth age and we no longer have that compass anymore we can do to others what we want to do rather than doing to others what we would want done to us and then Yahweh has to come and say I'm going to let you have the consequences of your own choices and it's going to destroy you but even then Yahweh says but I'm still going to raise up a people among you in the hopes that you will see it so Yahweh says, sing for joy, daughter Zion. Do you see the language, daughter Zion? What kind of language is that? That is parental language. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, who, by the way, the king of Israel, who? Yahweh, do you notice that? I bet Josiah was like, cool with this. But that's the point because Yahweh, Zephaniah was saying the only way this is going to work is when you stop thinking Josiah's going to do it. I've always been your king, always wanted to be your king. You want to be like other nations. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is among you. Is where? Come on. Among you. You need no longer fear harm. 
On that day, it'll be said to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. Yahweh, your God, is among you. Second time that that's been said in the text. Do you notice that? God is glad to be with you. Why do you say that, Fred? Because that's literally what he says. He will rejoice over you with what? Gladness. He will hold his peace and his love. He will rejoice over you, second time, with joyful songs. God wants to sing and dance in the midst of God's people, even when the world is on fire, all in the hopes that God's people will not lose their joy and realize that we are still called to join God in making wrong what is made right in the world, or making right what is made wrong in the world, and we can because we have the joy of the Lord. Because we have God who is with us. Because there's no place we can be where God is not going to be with us. Because God is not regretfully with you. Because God has not resigned God's self to be with you. God looks at you and longs to be with you and is glad to be with you. And wants you to see the gladness of God so much that God wants to dance and sing with you. And you can see the imagery in this story where you see the people of God dancing in the streets. Partying in the streets with God. Celebrating that God is with us even in the midst of all all of this brokenness and harm and they're not going to ignore it they're not becoming cloistered out with a holy huddle to ignore what is going on just the opposite because they're going to keep the commands of God they're going to follow God into the darkness they're going to follow God into the bullets and the bombs they're going to follow God into the harm and they're going to trust that Yahweh will make right what the world has made wrong and they know that if something happens and it takes their life that they began with God and they will end with God because they will always be with with God and they knew that more than they knew anything else and that is when the people of Yahweh were an actual light unto the nations and that's when the church will actually have a faithful witness the world would look different if Christians would live different and our strength comes from being honest with the brokenness of the world while not losing our joy because as the old hymn says, what the world doesn't give, the world can't take away. And the joy of the Lord, that's how the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. Why? Because our working definition of joy has been that joy is the outcome of knowing that God is glad to be with us and we belong to God. That's why joy is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the outcome of that. So it all comes down to a question. Do we have the imagination big enough? Is our imaginations big enough to envision a world where loving enemies and loving neighbors is even possible? And that's a question we each have to ask. And the design of the Christian community is to remind us when we come to the table that we are answering, yes, I believe. Some of us are going to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Some of us are going to lean into the text that Paul wrote to Timothy and says, even when we are faithless, God is still what? Faithful. In the midst of all of the sorrow and the suffering and the pain, I need you to remind me that I'm still called to enter into it and to feel it fully and to take on the blues of all that is and moan deep within my soul. But I need you to remind me that there is always within me a gospel shout that comes from the joy of the Lord of a God who says, I am glad to be with you and you belong to me 
and that will never change. Trust me and be with me. Dance with me. Weep with me. But just whatever you do, be with me as I am with you. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. 